From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Francis Rose. The presidential rank awards are back for 2021. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain says President Biden will help in the selection process for the awards former President Trump put on hold last year. GovExec reports the Office of Personnel Management will take nominations through April 9th. 144 vendors have spots on the Defense Intelligence Agency's new Solutions for Information Technology Enterprise 3 contract. The 10-year contract could be worth up to $12.6 billion. FedScoop reports 107 of the vendors are small businesses. 45% of Navy sailors have at least one dose of a coronavirus vaccine. Almost 158,000 sailors have one dose as of Wednesday morning, and two-thirds of them have had both doses. USNI News reports the Navy says it's just started tracking the number of sailors who've declined to take the shots. The Technology Modernization Fund could get a billion-dollar cash infusion if the Senate stimulus bill becomes law. The language of the bill includes some structural changes to the fund, too. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer at IntelliBridge, former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, GSA. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Any news is good news for folks that, that care about information technology and government when there's a cash infusion of, uh, of this sort. What do you think so far of the way this is written? Uh, so I, I think it's reasonably well, well written. I mean, the most important thing is to get the dollars in there. As you know, uh, when the TMF started originally, it was a was a pretty big number in there. I think something on the order of maybe three billion. It got whittled down, and uh, you know there was initially like 150 million dollars put in there, and money's been sort of proposed and taken out in in a number of bills. Uh, but to see a potential infusion of a billion dollars uh, come into the TMF, I think would be um, would be great, right? So the money's the most important part. There are some mechanics around how it operates. You know, different people have different different opinions on that. I I do think that the the sort of payback or loan model is important uh, to keep in place. I think that uh, the accountability and sort of making sure folks present really sound business cases and then kind of follow up and make sure that you know, what you thought was going to happen actually did happen with the investment is important. So I, from from my personal perspective and as a taxpayer, I'd like to see that remain a component of the TMF. But more than anything, it's just important to get some money in there to be able to drive some of those kind of investments that the TMF was designed for. I think this debate over whether this should stay a payback structure or go to more of a grant model as the legislation seems to be written is really striking. I expected that there would be a lot more uh, agreement that the model that is going now works and it should stay that way to keep that money available to other agencies and other projects in the future. Seems to me there's about a 50-50 split as far as folks that think that we should transition to a more traditional model away from what we're doing now. Why expand on your argument, Alan, that we should keep it the way that it is and agencies should eventually have to pay this money back? So, uh, look, I like I, I like almost kind of a private sector mindset. I mean, that you know, I've sat on the TMF uh, for a couple of years when uh, when Suzette Kent chaired it. And we really treated it as as sort of like a, a you know a venture capital investment, if you will, right? And we're we're looking, you know, we're, we're looking for payback. We're looking for strong business cases. It was always instructive, um, you know, when programs came forward uh, to pitch the TMF to look for money, right? To really kind of dig into the numbers and, and get some sense for what the payback is. Now there are you know there are different ways to think about payback, right? I mean, you can you can talk about 
things like cost avoidance, which get a little squishier. You can talk about improvement in service delivery and, and, and quantify that. But I think, again, it's important for people, um, particularly in, in, you know, in government projects, which can have these long tails, right? And there are lots of stories you've heard about things that go off the rails. It's important in my mind to have that payback component. Agencies really then do have skin in the game. Uh, and it gives the board sort of a North Star, if you will, as they continue to evaluate investments. I mean, one of the most important things that TMF does is after they make an initial investment, you check in on it periodically to see how it's going and you offer guidance and rudder to the project teams. And, you know, having some sort of financial component with payback in it is, uh, again, is something you can you can sort of guide guide to. Right. If you take that out, um, uh, you know, my sense is that some projects will co will kind of go off the rails. Your former colleague, David Shive, the CIO at GSA, was on the program a couple of weeks ago talking about this issue. Two things out of that conversation struck me, Alan. One is that he said, we want, we're open for business. We want proposals. We want projects, which makes me think maybe there aren't a ton of them in the pipeline, especially to soak up potentially a billion dollars. The other one was he talked about the structural capabilities of the TMF board right now that you used to sit on. Do you think there's enough capacity in the board to absorb that kind of money and be able to examine that level of projects? And what's your sense of the flow right now? Is there a flow? Is there enough demand to use up that kind of money if it were to become available? So, uh, you know, there, there's never a shortage of demand for money in Washington, Francis. I, I would say Fair that, especially when, 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 especially when it comes to technology, right? I don't know specifically what's in the TMF pipeline. I know there's a great infrastructure built behind the board. There's a program office at GSA, um, which sort of does all the blocking and tackling uh, needed to in terms of getting, you know, intaking projects, doing a quick review of them, and then sort of setting up the, uh, the funding so the money can be paid out and to track everything. So I don't, my sense is there wouldn't be a capacity issue. Uh, and I think in terms of the board's ability to review projects, I guess it depends on how many projects you're gonna review and of what size. For example, if you take on a big shared services project like payroll and time and attendance across government, right? And try and standardize on maybe one, just one or two SaaS systems across government, that's, you know, that's a project, an investment that has many, you know, many components to it. That could that could uh, you know that could soak up a lot of the dollars and potentially deliver a pretty nice return over over a period of time. You know, the, it wouldn't require the board to look at 30 proposals, right? They could look at you know they could look at a very few um, big bets like that. And I, I I mean I would sort of encourage that kind of thinking, especially when you have a billion dollars, right? It's a lot easier to think big when you've got a a billion dollars versus just just a hundred million. Touche to your point about money in Washington, Alan. Um, there's other cash available here that you pointed out to me that you think is important. USDS is one, and there are others. Tell me about those. Sure. So they, uh, there were two hundred million dollars for USDS, uh, you know, which I think would be which would be a nice infusion uh, for them, and then another hundred and fifty million dollars tagged for the Federal Citizen Services Fund, which is. One of the few, it's the largest and one of the very few appropriated accounts within GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's something that the, uh, the TTS team, the Technology Transformation Services team within FAS could really make use of, supports USA.gov, cloud.gov, login.gov, a number of those kind of government-wide initiatives that TTS, uh, TTS sponsors. You know, when you think about the totality of what's in there, 1.35 billion to kind of drive digital transformation, that's um, that that's pretty impressive and really could be could be kind of fun for this this new team right to have to have that sort of funding 
Got to have the right folks in place at OMB, though, to provide the kind of oversight and coordination that you really need to get the most out of the dollars. That, that would be my biggest concern, right, is that it's not um, you, you don't have somebody quarterbacking it, right, to make sure that you get the most leverage you can out of that money. Alan Thomas, thanks very much, as always. Thanks for having me, Francis. Up next, new ethics rules for the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, is there anything there that wasn't there before? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Defense Department personnel, both civilian and uniformed, have a new ethics code of conduct. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin writes the code comports with President Biden's efforts to restore trust in government. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Roger, thanks very much for coming on the program. Is it your sense this is a response to some event or events in particular, or is this just a statement, do you think, of the new administration's position? Well, the fact that you're asking that question shows that it's not clear. Um, and you talk to some people and they say, hey, this is just kind of the Biden administration outlook and all agencies will at some point uh, have guidance that uh, reflects their, you know, this, this standard of ethics. On the other hand, you know, there are many who think that this is tied to January 6th and is specific to the military uh, and to make sure that uh, this code of conduct is something that the entire Department of Defense and the military understand is a priority for the president and the secretary. Did anything in this guidance jump out at you, Roger, either that was there or that struck you as interesting that it was not there? Nothing uh, in terms of what was not there. Uh, a lot of the ethics guidance seems to be con you know, it, continuity, what you'd expect the department uh, to have in place prior to the Biden administration. Um, so it's, to me, just a point of emphasis, uh, not really departing from what's been expected in the past, but now demonstrating that this is a key priority for the secretary. I'm grateful for you also pointing me to another priority of the secretary, and that is the development of the next national defense strategy. Uh, new guidance uh, coming from the White House yesterday in that area. What do you see there, Roger? Well, as you mentioned, the... White House released the Interim National Security Strategy, uh, and it basically tells everybody where the continuity will be from the previous national defense strategy. As you mentioned, China is prominent in this document that the White House released yesterday. Uh, but specific to Department of Defense, it really suggests that we're looking at flat or declining budgets, not because the, the document said so. That wouldn't be appropriate for a national security strategy document, but because there was language about getting rid of legacy defense systems and somehow focusing on technology as a means of dealing with the defense budget. That uh, idea is something that every branch is talking about. Uh, General Berger in the Marine Corps suggesting the other day a 15% potential cut in the uh, civilian uh, billets at the, defense uh, at the Marine Corps to uh, pay for the way that he wants to modernize that force. The other forces all basically looking at the same thing. Should one be surprised that that is kind of the implied, if not expressed, intent of this interim guidance? I don't think it's surprising, but it's the first indicator this is indeed what they plan to do. 
you know, the, the key takeaway, um, or the key area of focus, I should say, is when the department makes those cuts, uh, let's say from legacy systems, or example you point to in the Marine Corps uh, civilians, what will happen with the savings? Will those savings uh, result in somehow paying down uh, the deficit, or will allow for reinvestment in the Department of Defense for modernization priorities? The latter would be the course that I'd recommend. I think most national security experts would say we must do. But if history or the past is precedent, what will likely happen is that those cuts that either the Marine Corps is finding in your case or more generally Department of Defense, uh, if they go ahead and, and cut legacy systems, will not result in increased modernization dollars. In fact, it will just go to reducing the defense budget. I note and appreciate the simplicity of this document, Roger. There are four elements in the table of contents. Introduction, global security landscape, our national security priorities, and the conclusion. Um, do you see anything different in the two uh, middle of those, the global security landscape, the national security priorities? Any major changes? Well, I think the areas of cooperation they seek with Russia and China would be a departure, certainly, from the previous administration. They're trying, that is, the Biden administration is trying to kind of realize this ba balance of confrontation and holding the Chinese accountable for what they're doing on all fronts, in this case, security fronts, at the same time, looking for areas of cooperation. Uh, that's a shift. The other shift that's in there uh, is on arms control and nuclear modernization. Uh, they are rightly looking to deal with uh, arms control, not only with the Russians, uh, but the Chinese, too. At the same time, uh, there is uh, kind of speculation that the Biden administration would go deeper in arms control and in some ways uh, be willing to give up our strategic deterrence. I'll call on your expertise from the House Armed Services Committee tenure uh, that you enjoyed. What should we expect to see manifest itself from this or other policy documents in uh, any kind of policy from Congress? Well, you'll see oversight. There will absolutely be uh, a requirement, a request coming from the Armed Services Committees uh, to the Department of Defense to explain what does this document mean? Uh, just like we're having a conversation about you know, what's the same and what's different, they're absolutely going to do that, and particularly the paragraphs that deal with the Department of Defense. It mentions legacy systems. Well, which legacy systems? As you know, those importance are, uh, questions are critical as the Armed Services Committee uh, developed the National Defense Authorization Act uh, for this coming fiscal year. Roger Zakheim, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to the new DOD ethics guidance at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, the Department of Veterans Affairs moves to the cloud. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's new and what's next for the agency's cloud journey. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. The Department of Veterans Affairs has scaled its telehealth visits by a factor of 10 since the beginning of the pandemic. Telehealth is only one application of more than 100 that live in the cloud for the agency. David Catanoso is Director of Enterprise Cloud Solutions at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome. It's great to have you on the program. Take me back to the beginning of the VA's cloud journey, or as far back as you can take me, 
And tell me how the VA goes about um, deciding, prioritizing which apps go to the cloud and which apps don't. Well, good morning, Francis. On behalf of the VA, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to talk about what we're doing in cloud technology to serve our veterans. Before I do, however, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge the significant contributions of women across the Office of Information Technology, particularly now as we celebrate Women's History Month here at the VA. For those who may not know, the VA is the second largest federal agency, second only to the Department of Defense. And we have over 400,000 employees with three primary missions, healthcare, benefits, and National Cemetery Administration. And as you can imagine, we're approximately a Fortune 9 size organization with a large IT infrastructure that is uh, designed to support and deliver capability to those, those missions. Under Secretary McDonough's leadership, we're committed to delivering the best customer service to all our veterans. And VA's digital transformation effort is, is a key part of that to deliver rapid innovation and IT, continuous IT modernization. And cloud technology, as you mentioned, is a critical part of that effort. Um, as the director of ECSO, my team and I are responsible for delivering the VA Enterprise Cloud, uh, and in addition to that, migrating applications to that cloud and ensuring that the cloud is more broadly adopted across the enterprise. But we're not doing it alone. With senior leadership support and membership and teamwork across the Office of Information Technology, we're really working our best to make sure this is a huge success. Today, our Enterprise Cloud consists of two primary environments, Microsoft Azure Government and, uh, and also AWS GovCloud. And in addition to that, we add uh, several layers of third-party tooling on top of that to maximize the security of veteran data and ensure that uh, teams can move very rapidly to the cloud to take advantage of that technology for our veterans. And that's how we got to start. We wanted to build that landing area first to enable us to migrate applications safely and securely into the cloud. How do you then decide which ones go? Well, we, we validate each application. It's a variety of techniques that we use. Sometimes application teams come to us with the need to use cloud technology, other times, We'll identify applications that are critical uh, to, to the enterprise to move to the cloud to take advantage of, of various cloud capabilities that's auto scaling and higher reliability, disaster recovery capabilities, things like that. As I mentioned at the beginning, you're a hundred and some apps into this journey now. What does that process look like today that may be different than the at the beginning when you were, I guess, more in triage mode? Sure, so in the beginning, our, our main goal is to stand up the platform and get it ready to receive applications. And a lot of times consultants will tell you, start small, uh, move your smallest applications first, build some traction, but for a variety of very good reasons, it turns out, we went in the exact opposite direction and very early we moved some of our biggest, most mission critical applications to the cloud, which was a little higher risk factor, but once we did that, it really gave us a huge uh, built, uh, confidence level to where we could move more and more applications. And like you said, today, we have over 100 applications that are uh, successfully running in the cloud and probably another 50 or so in a pipeline. We, we basically attacked the problem by planning our migrations in quarterly waves, similar to like, agile uh, scrums or agile uh, backlogs and then uh, sprints. And then we basically migrate those uh, every quarter. We move another series of applications. We got over 50 or 60 of those in the pipeline now. What did you do at the beginning to mitigate that risk given that you were going kind of in the opposite direction to what a consultant might suggest? Well, I guess we, we tried to measure twice and cut once, be very careful about the steps that we took. Uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of very careful uh, execution, but in a, in a team effort, having a lot of eyes on it and, and just moving very methodically. What's your total app inventory? It sounds, so you have more than 100 in the cloud now. You have 50 to 60, you said, are in the pipeline. At what, will, will there be a point where you're finished? Will there be a point where you say, the apps that we have left that are still in data centers probably going to stay in data centers? We're always going to have a mix of data centers and cloud technology given the size of our infrastructure. We've got approximately 1,000 apps in our inventory today. 
Uh, we're probably tracking to do maybe 350 or so by 2024, but we're definitely on, a, on an upward trend in terms of adoption of cloud technology. What do you, what's, what have you had to do architecture-wise, if anything, differently as now that you're, it sounds like maybe you're in the, you're midway through this transition than you thought you were going to do at the beginning? Well, the things that we're looking at now really are, are maturity levels, right? We're trying to mature the use of cloud technology, move more from a, a lift and shift or, or non-minimal rehosting level activities to um, taking more and more advantage of cloud, cloud native services like you know, PaaS databases or containerization. We're also looking to add more and more monitoring and automation where we've got a very strong AI operations effort underway to ensure we can really um, reduce our mean time to resolution if we have an incident and speed innovation. So we've got a lot of activities going on to mature the use of the cloud as opposed to just using cloud. Does your office have a role in developing new apps? For example, everybody pays attention to VA to the electronic health records transition, but I imagine there are a lot of other apps that come online over time. And I wonder if your team is involved in, in that from the very beginning now. So we're more of an enabling office. We really make the technology available and help applications use the cloud. We're not actually in the development role. There are other great teams at the VA that are doing development. We have about 30 seconds left. Uh, what will you do, what will you watch moving forward? What are the, the potential pain points that you want to try to ameliorate before they happen? We're always trying to make sure we maximize security. As you can imagine with current events, that's important. And then on top of that, we're looking to take advantage of these newer technologies like AI ops and containerization to take everything that we're doing here at the VA to a new level. David Catanoso, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows. When you get our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.